0: focus on this idea of witnessing the change. Because the reality is, we're here this morning because a tomb was empty. And that story has continued, and people have continued to witness it, and and to experience it for themselves. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still telling the same story. Because it just doesn't go away. Because Jesus doesn't go away, because he is alive. And so, post-Easter last year, we, we talked about the book of Acts, which is, Kind of the the history of the the early church, of the movement of Jesus' disciples, written by Luke in in the New Testament. And it's kind of a chronology of what happened to these people that experienced Jesus. That they truly witnessed the change. Now, as a church, we've talked about growing this year. People that grow are people that are God-focused, relationally healthy, opportunistically serving, and witnessing the change, G-R-O-W. God-focused, relationally healthy, opportunistically serving, witnessing the change. And so we kind of we get to the W, and it's, it's kinda, it all ties together. But it, it really centers on this fact of, of, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And if he did, what difference does that actually make? And we're going to look at someone whose life was totally changed because he encountered the risen Christ. But our story starts, if you have your, your Bible, in the book of Acts, chapter 7. These people that had witnessed the resurrection were going around and telling other people about it. Jesus is the Christ. He's the the Jewish Messiah. He is God who came here. He died for the sins of the whole world. Those who believe in him have eternal life. He's risen. He's alive. He lives forevermore. This movement, this story just kept spreading. People are receiving it. They're believing it. Their lives are changed. The early church is a Jewish church. It's people that were Jews that had embraced Jesus as a Messiah. Now they're walking in this new way, the way of Jesus. The Jews don't like this. There's antagonism, opposition. As the church is growing, it's kind of getting out of hand. These these apostles, kind of the disciples, the early church leaders, I mean, the ministry needs are huge, and they're like, oh, we we can't handle this. There's complaints going on about these widows not getting fed. They appoint these seven men to be deacons to take care of all the, the ministry, and Stephen is one of these guys. Stephen, but not only is he just one of these guys that cares for ministry, He's a guy that's able to, to, to refute and to preach Jesus, and he goes to the synagogues, and he's debating people, and he's really making a lot of enemies, as well as he's making friends because the Jews and the Jewish aristocracy don't like him. He finally gets dragged before their court, and their whole goal here is to condemn him to death. And at the end of his sermon he gives in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, he really calls them out in chapter verse 51, and to 53, and it says in verse 54 that when they heard these things, this is the whole court and the people there, they became furious and ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently toward heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, shouting with a loud voice, and rushed at him with one intent. I mean, what a kind of a blasphemous thing a person would say that, Right? And when they had driven out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They continued to stone Stephen while he prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died, and Saul agreed completely with killing him. We're introduced to Saul, this guy, this Jewish leader, who's standing there watching this mob violence going on. It says, now that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was trying to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul, he's a Pharisee. He's religiously trained, educated. He's a good moral man. He's doing what he knows to be right. He is upholding and maintaining and preserving the traditions of the Jewish way of life and and their faith. And this new way has crept in and it's dragging good godly Jews into this sect, into this cult. And he is going to do everything he can to stop it, even dragging women into prison and men. And you wonder at this point, what's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to these these disciples, these people that have witnessed the resurrection and have shared the message? I mean, is it going to die at this point? I mean, they've been scattered. What's what's happening now? I mean, is this over? Is the movement dead? Because there's a guy here that's ready to stop it. And so that's where we find him in verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high Priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He is determined to stop this movement. Get this, now. We think of Saul as evil man here. I mean, he's watching guys get stoned, he's dragging men and women off to prison. But but he's a good guy. He is a guy that is steeped in the scriptures of the Old Testament. He is morally pure. He's the guy that you'd be happy if your your daughter brought home and wanted to date. He's the guy you'd want to live next to because he'd be honest and fair and reasonable in every way. But he had this zeal for the Jewish faith and the Jewish way of life. And this way of Jesus just threatened that. It kept growing. It was kind of like a cancer, like this mold that just kept spreading. He's like, I gotta stop this. He was on a mission from God in his mind. Convinced that he's going to do the right thing, he's got this letter which allows him to extradite any Jewish people in the synagogues that are adhering to the way of Jesus. Let's just clean them out of that synagogue. Let's, because it's it's spreading. If I stop in Damascus, maybe it won't spread on to Antioch or to Rome or to the you know further regions. We got to stop this now. He knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. He is on a mission from God. He's completely sincere. You're going to encounter people in life that are completely sincere in their faith. And they think, well, I'm sincere in my faith, you're sincere in your faith. Is it the same? I would suggest to you that it's not the same, because we're going to see what makes the difference here. You can be sincerely wrong. It says in verse 3, As he was going along, approaching Damascus, it's about a six-day trip from Jerusalem to Damascus, so it's a, it's a decent, it's a week-long trip, basically. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, he is going with a clear intent of what he wants to do, and as he, as he goes, he, he sees this light, he hears this voice, it's speaking to him personally and directly. Being the good Sunday school kid that he was, he would recognize all the features of an appearance of God as as you would know in the Old Testament. I mean, the light, the voice, the direct speech to him. I mean, this definitely is is a divine encounter that he is having here on the road to Damascus. It was not what he was expecting. Nor was he expecting the confrontation that comes from the the voice. Why are you persecuting me? He's like, what do you mean? I'm not persecuting anyone. I'm doing your will. Because you see the answer there. Verse 5. So he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? I mean, it could be read many ways. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Like, I mean, he, he, you know, obviously this is God. I mean, who, who is he persecuting? I'm not persecuting, you know, like It doesn't make any sense. But in the moment, he, he is speaking to God. God, God is, is responding to him. And then he gets hit right in the solar plexus. He replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What? So devoted, so zealous, so focused, so ambitious, so wrong. He encounters the living Christ, the risen Christ, and it changes his life forever. He doesn't speak again in this whole passage. That was the last thing he said. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And now, from this point on, Saul shuts up, and Jesus does all the talking, and then his servants. He has put Saul in his place. He has encountered the risen Christ, and now his whole life has to change. He has no choice. But he does have a choice. But in the midst of that, God reaches out to Saul and meets him on the road to Damascus. He says, but stand up, enter the city, and you'll be told what you must do. It tells us in verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. And twice other times in the book of Acts, Luke recounts this story that Paul shares with in different places, and he talks about different features, right? The men saw the light. The men heard the voice. Modern scholars. New Testament scholars have, have suggested that, that this was not a miraculous encounter, that, that Saul kind of went into some kind of you know, psychotic you know, thing or epileptic seizure or something like that, and that, that it was just kind of an imaginatory recounting that he's giving us here. But the truth of the matter is, these men could, could verify. You no, know, no, there was something there. It was bright. We heard some kind of noise. We couldn't tell you what he saw or what he heard, but, but he did see something. He did hear something. Saul was not making this up. Luke includes that, I think just so we realize. This is not just some kind of, you know, he ate some mushrooms and he started seeing things. I mean, no, he actually saw Jesus. Jesus was speaking to him, the risen Christ. And he was speaking to him as God. He addressed him as Lord. He responded, I am Jesus. And suddenly Saul's like, so Jesus is God. So the crucified Messiah actually did rise again. So everything that these people have been talking about actually is true. What am I supposed to do now? Well, God tells him, go to the city and I will tell you what you're going to do. And so he goes. He got up from the ground, verse 8. But although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus. For three days he could not see, and he neither ate nor drank anything. The dark night of the soul. As he thought through everything he had learned, and experienced and been doing. All the men and women he dragged out of their houses and thrown into prison. He like, and even that stoning of Stephen, he remembered the whole sermon, that, the big sermon that Stephen preached, and he's like, man, it makes sense now. I thought I was seeing things clearly. I was blind. And now that I'm blind, I actually see because I have encountered the risen Christ. My life will never be the same again. The reason we're told this story is because how else could a man who was so antagonistic become so engaged with the mission of Jesus? How could the, the persecutor be willing to become the persecuted except that he'd had this significant encounter with the risen Christ in his own life on the road to Damascus? And it's interesting. He's got that darkness in his soul. It's kind of the death of Saul. It's the death of his old life. It's the burial of, just as Jesus was in the tomb for three days, there's Saul, three days in darkness, not eating, not drinking. He's like, he's got to reframe his whole life now because of Jesus. He's changed him forever. In verse 10, we find kind of the, the second part of the story. You see, because when you come to believe in Jesus Christ, the risen Messiah, you, you, you not only become his child, but you join his family. And here God brings Saul into contact and into engagement with this thing called the the church or the way, the group of disciples. Saul's not to live in isolation, but he's to be part of the body now of this group. And it says in verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he replied, here I am, Lord. Then the Lord told him, get up. Go to the street called Straight, and at Judas's house look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him, so that he may see again. You've got to understand, like there's a bit of tension amongst the disciples. I mean, there's persecution, right? I mean, the guys are getting, women are getting dragged out of houses, thrown into prison. I mean, there's, there's this little edginess, and suddenly he's praying, God says, hey, look, Ananias, go to that guy, the persecutor. And, you know, right, you know, you know where it is. It's on the street there by Judas' house. I mean, God is very specific and detailed in his vision. And he's seeing you come in Ananias. And place your hands on him so he can see again. I want you to welcome him into the family. <laughs> nice, eh? You know, it's interesting. Luke likes to record how God often uses visions. And now, the people that receive visions are never looking for them. They're praying to God, they're worshiping, and in that moment... God visits them. I mean, you should never seek visions, but God does minister in this way, even, even today. I found this story by Christy Wilson. He was a missionary in Afghanistan. They had led one of the very first converts to Christ. He had come to the United States to study, he had received Christ, and he went back to Afghanistan. And, and he was persecuted. He kind of had to you know, run around, and he got his pilot's license, but eventually died in a plane crash. It was tragic. And Christy and his wife were like, well, this is really sad. Why did he die? And it says that, you know, they went to the family to kind of sympathize with them after he had died and it says shortly afterwards his brother came to see us. He told us about a dream he'd had. God often spoke to his people in dreams and visions throughout the Bible, yet in our Western culture if you say you had a dream, people immediately think you ate too much pizza. (laughs) You know, the brother said, I had a very strange dream the other night. I saw my dead brother Abraham. He was alive and standing in a beautiful garden where the trees were laden with the most luscious looking fruit. A stream separated us, however, but the fruit looked so delicious, I asked my brother to send me some. This is part of the Afghan custom of hospitality. Whenever you visit an orchard or vineyard, when fruit is in season, the owners will give you a basketful. When I asked my brother to do this, he went on, Abraham replied, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't, but I'll tell you what to do. Go to the Wilson's home and ask their son to tell you how to get to this garden. <clears throat> then you can come here yourself and eat all the fruit you want. Chris, our eldest boy, was nine years old then, a wonderful evangelist. I've seen my dead brother alive in heaven, Abraham's brother told me. He sent me to your home. You know the truth, what is it? Right there, I shared the gospel with him, telling him that this was where he could go to heaven, the way to go to heaven and to be with his brother. And he accepted Christ right on the spot. Since then, he's gone on to become an even more (coughs) wonderful Christian than his brother Abraham. Shortly after that, Abraham's brother was also arrested for becoming a Christian, thrown into prison and given shock treatments to force him to deny his Lord. The authorities believed that he had truly lost his mind. No sooner was he released from prison than Satan attacked his family. His little girl suddenly became gravely ill, and the local doctors gave her only a few days to live. His wife had been keeping vigil at the child's bedside. One evening, she was so exhausted that he told her to go get some rest. I'll take care of our little girl tonight, he said. About 3 a.m., as he was reading this Pashto New Testament, Abraham's brother suddenly beheld a radiant light flooding the entire room. Then he saw Jesus Christ appear in all his glory. The Lord spoke to him in perfect pasture without any accent. Don't be afraid, the Lord said. Your little girl is going to be all right. Then the Lord disappeared. And when he turned to look at his little girl, she was healed. He had never heard of anything like this before. So early the next morning, he came to our home and told me all about it and asked for an explanation. Because he was such a young Christian, he had not yet read the book of Acts, where the Lord had appeared in a blinding vision to Saul on the road to Damascus. Neither had he read the book of Revelation to learn how the Lord had appeared in a glorious vision to John on the island of Patmos. I read those passages from the New Testament to him, and when I had finished reading the description of Christ in Revelation written by the Apostle John, this Afghan Christian turned to me and said, that's exactly the way he looked. That's just the way he looked. He has such a beautiful face. I can't wait to go and be with him, the way my brother has. Since that time, Abraham's brother has brought his whole family to Christ. I mean, God still speaks this way. I mean, Jesus is alive, right? So he's got the prerogative to show up whenever and wherever he wants to. I mean, that's he's God, Right? And here's Ananias, and, and, you know, it's like God, God's telling him exactly what to do, but, but, but it's a difficult request. I mean, look what Ananias says in verse 13. Ananias replied, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to imprison all who call on your name. I mean, this is reasonable. Look, God, do you, do you know what you're asking me? This, this guy is here on a mission. But God's like, no, 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 he, he's not on that mission anymore, He's on my mission now. The Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The persecutor has become the pers- will become the persecuted. He's my instrument, Ananias. Just do it. And look what disciples do. Verse 17, so Ananias departed. He went and entered the house, placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, you're a believer. You share the same faith as me. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road to Damascus as you came here, has sent me here so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, Saul had not sent for Ananias. There's no way Ananias could have maybe known this story except that God had revealed it to him. And so God is speaking to to Saul, God's speaking to Ananias, and that moment they meet, he lays his hands on him, and it says in verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, his strength returned. He could now see again. He gets up, he identifies publicly, Saul is dead. I now live in the new life of Jesus Christ through baptism. He has become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And he's going to go from here and cause all sorts of problems throughout the world (laughs) for people that are settled in their own ways of life and their own philosophies and their own religions because he brings in the message of a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, the question is, how could this Jewish Pharisee become this passionate evangelism and follower of Jesus? What happened? He encountered the risen Christ. The question is, is this normative? Should I expect this type of experience? And And the answer to that is no. But you can expect to experience or to encounter the risen Christ. And some people encounter him quietly and, and gently and meekly. Lydia and Philippi and her friends are sitting by the river and Paul comes and explains the gospel to them and they receive it. In the same town, a Philippian jailer is you know, in an earthquake and he's like, what must I do to be saved? I mean, it, it's different for everyone, but the, the common denominator is the risen Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The Ethiopian eunuch is just looking at the scriptures. He's he's a seeker. He's seeking. He's seeking. And finally, Philip gets in the chariot with him, explains to him how Christ, the suffering servant, fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah and how he's the risen Savior. And he's like, I believe. Let's stop right here. There's some water. Let's get in there. He's baptized. It's different for everyone except for one common denominator, the risen Christ. And I pray and I hope that everyone in this room has encountered the risen Christ. Because you can't encounter and, and leave unchanged unless you just flat out refuse to believe it. But if you've truly encountered like, yeah, he's, he's Christ, he's God, he's the Son of God, he's, he's the Savior, he lives forever, I mean, it will change you. You notice Saul had his direction? He encounters Jesus, boom, now he's on Jesus' direction. Whatever plans, goals, and that's what the passage, Pastor Sammy read, I've counted all that, all my resume, my curriculum, inviting, I'm just throwing that in the garbage, in the trash heap, because now I'm on Jesus' time, Jesus' education, Jesus' path, Jesus' goal, Jesus' future. Changes him forever. Some of you felt this when you first came to Christ. It felt like everything was different. But maybe that feeling has just kind of waned and you're kind of back on, on making your own plan, setting your own goals, doing your own thing. And maybe today Jesus is calling you back to that encounter and saying, you know what, let's get back on track with me. Because i I got, I got places for you. You're my chosen instrument. I've got things for you, places, people for you to minister. I've got, I've got a plan for you. Are you willing to accept it? Or are you just like, I want Jesus, I want eternal life, but I don't necessarily want the plan or I don't want to give up what I have. And, and Jesus is like, look, man, it's, it's all or nothing. You're, you're in or you're or You're out. And Saul was 100% in. He died to whatever was there before, and he embraced Jesus completely. And that's true for all of us, I think. It doesn't mean, I mean, for some people, it doesn't mean selling and moving to doing stuff. Others, it means, no, just now embracing the life of Jesus Christ where you are. In your business, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, that you're just you know, living it out as, in, in your profession. You're just like, yeah, you're, you're, you're modeling, you're witnessing, you're showing people what a transformed life looks like. And the reality is, is that the risen Christ wants to do this transformational work in our lives every day. It doesn't have to be a Damascus Road experience every day, but he wants to continually transform us. And that's what the New Testament talks about. We're being changed, you know, one little bit of glory to the next, to the next. As as we continue to follow Jesus, we kind of become more like him, and and the old life just continues to kind of drop off like scales as we embrace the life of Jesus Christ. And and this is what he wants for us. I end the story there. there. There's a second part, and that's next week's sermon. What happens to Saul now? He's been blinded. He's been... Humbled, he's been humiliated, he's been embarrassed, he's been baptized, he's not saying anything. What's what's gonna happen when he starts talking? We're gonna find out next week. Something really changes in his life. But the significance of today is the risen Christ. Have you encountered the risen Christ? He died for your sins. You see, the Jews couldn't accept the crucified Messiah. That was a, a sign of weakness, that was a stumbling block. But but Paul now gets it because he's seen the risen Savior. He's not dead anymore. He's alive and he lives forever. He's God. And so everything in life centers around God. So if you want to get with God, you've got to get with Jesus. And that's where he is. Have you encountered the risen Savior? And in, having encountered him, are you ready to follow him? And part of that is an act of surrender, of letting go of whatever you had before and just fully embracing him. And, you know, what you give up is nothing compared to what you get. I can tell you that for sure. But sometimes when some of us have walked with the Lord for many years, we we forget about that. And today I just want you to just go back in your head and your heart to to that time when you encountered Jesus. And just really remember what what it was like to know that you were forgiven, that you were accepted, that you were loved by God. The joy that you you, you felt, and and maybe for some of you it was more emotional than others, but just to to know that that your account was settled with God and that you were now good with him and he was good with you and and that he, he had a plan for your life. We have got to remember that. It's like celebrating anniversaries for your marriage. I mean, it's good to maintain the marital love. It's just to celebrate your anniversary. Well, we need to celebrate our, our birthday with Jesus, our adoption into his family. We need to remember, yeah, yeah, that was good. I can remember as a kid, you know, being in a camp and, and just realizing that as good as my parents were, they, they weren't good enough to save me. Like, I was like, I couldn't just kind of piggyback their faith. I, I had to personally come to encounter the risen Jesus for my own life, and so... I can remember going and, and, and praying to receive Christ as my Savior, this little camp in, in the Okanagan there, and, and it, was, it was life-changing. And I go back there, and I just remember how sweet it was and how the risen Savior has stayed with me from that day ever since. With some valleys, with some mountaintops, with everything in between, the risen Savior has stuck with me, and he will stick with you. So come back to the risen Savior. And if, if you've never actually encountered the risen Savior, today's your day. It's the, the road to Damascus. You can believe in Jesus Christ today. He's, he's inviting you into relationship with him. Because... You know, the thing about Saul's conversion that's kind of freaky is Luke is always focused on these kind of, you know, the tax collector, the criminal, the the prostitute, the lady of the street, you know, all these kind of fringe people. And now he focuses in on on the perfectly good neighbor, the nice guy, the good guy, the the clean-living, righteous, you know, Bible-believing guy. And even he was lost without Jesus. We're all lost without Jesus. The good news is the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's just be found today. Let's rejoice that we're found today. and Let's remember that the, we're called to witness this change in our lives every day. Would you pray with me as we close? And the team prepares.